Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me, as always, is Eitan. Hello, Eitan. Hey, Carl. How are you doing? Good. Uh, we are not joined by Kevin yet. We should not. <laughs> this is the classic podcast trap. Every podcast I listen to, feels like it feels like they've had this happen, where they call their shot that they're going to do an episode about something with somebody, and then it just doesn't work. But I've been mm-hmm. traveling a little bit. You've been busy. Kevin's been traveling. Hopefully it works out next week. If not, I don't know, we start running up against your wedding. Who knows? But we're going to be recording and coming at you every one to three weeks for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> and who knows? Worst case, the stuff with Kevin for the awards. I don't know if you saw the Writers Guild announced that their awards are going to be in April because okay. of the, the strike. They pushed everything. So we might be okay. We might just be going with the flow where most of these things end up. Incredible. Uh, pushing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that reminds me of something we weren't going to talk about. Did you see? Did you see the thing about Taylor Swift and SAG rules? No. This is a positive thing. So Taylor Swift, Arrow's tour, doing well. She self distributed it, and as part of this, she's apparently a SAG member, and out of solidarity with SAG, she is not allowing it to be released on streaming. And not negotiating on the streaming deals until the SAG after dispute is resolved. Pretty cool. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. She did promote it in theaters. She did. Which I guess because she's doing it herself, she doesn't have okay. I, yeah. I think it's she got a waiver for promotions. I think it also gets a little tricky when it's like, okay, is she acting? Is she performing? Is it a theater thing or is it musicians? Like where does that fall under guilt guidelines? But apparently she's been trying to do everything above board and everything in solidarity with the actors, which, frankly, she doesn't need to do. And I think a lot of people wouldn't even realize she was scabbing if she did. So good for her. That's I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, that's pretty good. I feel like uh, if she continues to balk trends in a good way, could the Eras tour be also... Well, I guess there is now... We'll talk a little bit about licensing again. But there is stuff now that it's in like... HBO Max and Netflix. And I was going to say if this has become the first thing that is in like everywhere. But I guess if it's going to be everywhere, it loses the amount of money that people are willing to pay. So to maximize her licensing right, that might also not make sense. Who knows? I mean, she she could do that. But it was, I mean, yeah, we haven't touched on it. I mean, it completely wiped the first week. The second week, it went against the opening of... Killers of the Flower Moon, and it still won by like double. I think it doubled in its second weekend. It doubled the first week of Killers of the Flower Moon. Well, good for good for her. Impressive. Yeah. Should we? Well, like, finish your thought. We can talk about Killers. I, I, mean, I don't really have any thoughts Killers beyond beyond that. So let's let's talk about oh. that. Uh, I I did feel the the length. I haven't seen it yet. I'm seeing it Sunday. So you felt the length. Tell me, what does that mean? It's not usual that I look at my phone in the movies. Wow. You were disrupting the theater for everyone around you. You were ruining the experience and checking TikTok. No, it was almost empty. I went to IMAX on a Sunday. I mean, it's a big IMAX, but there wasn't many people. The movie's great. 
I really enjoyed it. It's also been interesting to follow the the kind of the discourse about it. Like there was this one article that Ariela shared with me that we were talking about where you've read the book, right? You know the story. I wouldn't spoil. I haven't anything. read the book, but I don't care about you spoiling it. I have read the Wikipedia page and know. Oh, okay. Stuff about it. Listeners, if you don't want to get spoiled, advance 60 seconds. 60 seconds beyond this. Three, two, one. Okay. So in this article, they talk about how one of the things that they hoped, like Scorsese or the writers would have done a little bit differently, is that in the movie, it comes across as if the white men, which are awful, like every single <laughs> white person in this movie, especially the men, terrible people, that at the end of the day, even with all the things that they do that are awful, they still love the Native Americans. When in reality, they don't. And it was interesting to see that because my takeaway from seeing the movie was the opposite. was like that they did such a great job of like the way you end up, I ended up perceiving these characters was, yes, that's what they believe, but that's what makes them more evil. Like they came across as even more evil because of that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's it's such a... For me, as a... You know, I never studied U.S. history. I know you're from Oklahoma. You've told us... You grew up in Oklahoma. You've told us a lot about how close some of these locations are to where you grew up. But I I, had, I didn't know the story. And it talks a lot about the Osage Nation and how they organize themselves. And um, I found it very interesting and just awful. Like an awful story. Uh like, deeply awful. Like, I came out just being like, ugh, what an awful chapter of history. Um, but DiCaprio is great. Uh, Lily Latsum is great. De Niro is great. Um, Scorsese is great in his usual mini cameo. Um, I've, I've heard that his cameo so yeah. is very hefty and emotionally charged this time. I don't... Ha I actually have not spoiled that much about it, so... I won't tell you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But excited to visit it this weekend. We actually have... Um, Four movies programmed for this weekend. We are doing. Sorry, so we're recording on a Wednesday. So we have The Killer tomorrow. Nice. Priscilla Friday, Holdovers Saturday, and Killers on Sunday. So excited That's about a great it. Run. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Killers. Uh, uh, the, I'm, I'm not that excited about The Killer. Like, I don't know. Mank didn't do it for me. This trailer's not really doing it for me either. Seems like it's going to be fine. But fine, David Fincher's still great. And for me, it was more just, it's a Netflix thing. How often am I able to see Netflix projects in a theater? Got to prioritize yeah. trying to get to see that. No, that makes sense. Um, speaking of streaming and speaking of Netflix, um, something interesting we wanted to catch up on was uh, that we haven't talked about here today, but Netflix has been doing better recently and i think people were very surprised about um how well they did last quarter their stock is uh, making a comeback and i think my my first reaction and i think we talked a little bit about this maybe like a month ago was like oh of course like they've been going back to heavy heavy licensing mm -hmm. and i think we mentioned that we saw dune appeared on netflix or there was another movie Oh, that we talked about that I'm not going to remember. But just looking back, I want to eat 
I want to read you just a list that Matthew Ball put together of movies that weren't on Netflix last when last quarter began, so in the summer, that are now on Netflix, okay. that are not Netflix originals. Okay? Mm-hmm. Big Short, Silver Linings Playbook, Dune, Pride and Prejudice, Black Clansman, uh, Vice, Eat, Pray, Love, Scarface, The Imitation Game, Arrival, Catch Me in You Can, Get Out, Us, Heat, The Nice Guy, A Beautiful Mind, La La Land, Gladiator, Saving Private Ryan, Hacksaw Ridge, Black Hawk Down, Dark Knight, The Darkest Hour. What does this tell you? What's your reaction to some of this? <laughs> it tells me that our fundamental thesis was correct, that uh, their content was shit. I mean, all those movies you named, none of them have the cultural impact of a Heart of Stone or Red Notice. Like, What's a Heart of Stone? Oh, that's the uh, Gal Gadot I'm thriller. not even joking. I know. It's a Gal Gadot thriller. Um, yeah, it's it was, you know, the most watched and beloved film of August 2023. I can't believe you haven't heard of it. It's I can't remember if her name is Hart or it is Stone. Okay, her name, last name is Stone. Yeah, I I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it but joke, jokes aside, like it makes the point right that these are the big flagship things that they're pitching, and they they always have like this year they're gonna have Hitman come out, which they bought that doesn't quite count, but they have Maestro, they have the Killer. There are projects that they financed from auteurs that are going to do fairly well. Maybe not Oscars well, though Maestro might pick up heat. We'll see. Uh, in my draft, I might be pulling for it if I can snag it. But with that, that those like one or two flashy auteur releases is not going to pay the bills on the film side. They do fare better with television, obviously. But but even then. Like, how much of the, the coverage around Peacock was the fact that Friends was leaving Netflix? Or The Office was leaving mm-hmm. wherever it was streaming? It's, I think this just shows that people do actually care about content and follow content, especially today where content does move between platforms. Uh, I took a look at the top films earlier and kind of a skewed day to look because it's all Halloween related. So most of it was mm. Halloween classics in some way. But even then, um, Spider-Verse Across the Spider-Verse is the number one film, and I'm assuming it will stay the number one film for a while there. Does Sony have an exclusive deal with Netflix? I think so, right, for films? That sounds familiar. I think they have an exclusive first-run streaming deal. I can't even keep this stuff. Like, It's bad that this is probably ostensibly the, the point of our podcast is to keep track of this stuff, but it's not our day job. Anyway, that was a bunch of rambles, but... Tells yeah. me that we're right. That's all that matters. Yeah. I have a similar reaction. Like the one area where, of course, kudos to Netflix is they sensed also that some of these non sonnies that are producers, but that they do have their own streamers, are suffering. The Peacocks, the Paramounts, the Maxes. And they were like, yeah, I'll license your stuff. Like they pounded in a good opportunity and it's helping them kind of weather some of these storms that you and I have talked about for so long. Unclear if this is more of a wake-up call again, or if this is opportunistic. Right? Because if if, an, if a year from now some of these companies are doing better, they're going to stop this again. 
so far, no Fox or Disney movies are on Netflix, so they're holding strong. But uh, yeah, curious to see how it evolves or if they go back to both sides, right? Both it takes two to tango in licensing. If either side goes back to to where they were, I mean, I don't want to be all. We're always right. We get it. Like we have been wrong about Netflix, and we. Oh, I think you and I both yeah. predicted that the subscription sharing password thing would end poorly for Netflix. It hasn't been the layup success that maybe they pitched it as, but it's been successful. They've kept growing. To your point, the numbers were positive that just came out. But ultimately, I think this just does show that their cocky pre-pandemic attitude of we have the best content that everyone loves and watches and we are the future of cinema and TV IP just didn't come to pass. And I yeah. think that's the fundamental underpinnings of our thesis. And that's still divorced from our underpinnings of our thesis around streaming, which is the economics don't make any sense. Yeah. Which Speaking of things that we got wrong, uh, I got wrong. You didn't get wrong. Uh, Disney and Hulu. So I don't remember if it was one of my hot takes at the beginning of the year or just something that I... Um, predicted was that even though Disney and NBC Universal had this agreement that Disney could buy the remaining stake from NBC in Hulu, which was 33%, that I I saw it as actually not making sense for either party. Like NBCU had already taken a lot of their content out. The Hulu was just completely built in into Disney anyway, and it looked like the path was just we're going to stop investing in it. The only thing that right now is still making Hulu shine is FX in Hulu. That's very easy to just be like, this is FX in Disney Plus or whatever. And that it was just going to go down the drain. I clearly underestimated lawyers. And, <laughs> you know, even if strategy doesn't make sense, because today Disney announced that, that by December 1st, so in a month, it's going to pay NBC Universal. Uh, the value of their 33% floor for Hulu. And this is very important because in their agreement a couple of years ago, they set a floor for evaluation of Hulu of $27.5 billion. So what's going to happen is by December 1st, Disney is going to pay 33% of the floor, which is $8.6 billion. But they're going to make an appraisal with a third party of the value of Hulu. And if the value is higher, which is expected to be, Disney will pay the difference. So today, Wednesday, it happened. It was kind of breaking news that we're covering. A lot of the you know deadline was like, Disney to acquire the rest of Hulu for $8.6 It's like, no, for at least $8.6 billion. <laughs> They're making the payment for $8.6 billion, but this could go higher. Like I saw some estimates that it could be valued at double, like 50-something billion. So, uh, so, yeah, speaking of things that we got wrong, uh, Eitan underestimating lawyers, uh, not the first time that it's happened. Um, I'm I'm, I'm hopeful this finally will mean something for the mess that I find Disney's bundle to be. Under price and content discrimination, I find it confusing and not needed, especially with how much Disney Plus is struggling. But uh, maybe this will actually lead to uh, some new things. I mean, do you 
do you think this fundamentally changes your thesis around what will happen long term in terms of they just need to kill Hulu? I'm assuming it doesn't change what you would do. I I think it's I think it does. I don't think it changes it. I think it's reinforced over the past year with everything that Disney has been doing of like, yeah, we're focusing on profit. The bundle, I like the virtual bundle, like Netflix, right? Netflix doesn't have many different content packages. They have one, right? Because yeah. the idea is as long as somebody is in love with something, they're going to subscribe to you. And Hulu is doing well. Like between The Bear, What We Do in the Shadows, Only Murders in the Building, they have very good movies. They have a ton of the Fox stuff. It doesn't make sense to keep it separate from Disney Plus because even though it's bundled, quote unquote, you still have people that only have Hulu or only have Disney. Yeah. Just put it together and raise the price. But um, I don't know. What do you think? I think that your your ultimate thoughts are correct, that they should just combine it. It doesn't make any sense that it's all a shell game anyway. Uh, I think they've in, entangled the Fox brand and the Disney brand so much at this point that... It's not worth having like a Fox streaming service for adults or, or whatever. Right. Ultimately, I think this goes back to what my thought has been, which is that they just can't kill Hulu. It's too it's too valuable on the books. Now there's going to be another valuation of here's how much they paid for it. And the street is not going to be happy if they immediately destroy this asset or even in the short term. I don't... I think that that's... It's silly to, to run all this independently and maybe... Maybe they consolidate the team and consolidate the the back end and and add, just put two different skins on which the is done already, I right? Think. Like it's it is yeah, yeah. done. Disney Streaming Services is a team that is running all this, but even like the programming teams, I, we're gonna get into Disney programming and, and their studio in a minute. But I I don't know at this point. Like it was it was shocking to me to see this happen and come through. I figured you were right that it's going to die on the vine. But yeah. Maybe not. Maybe at worst, like a Paramount with Showtime, uh, Disney Plus with Hulu. <laughs> exactly. They did say, right, that Hulu, if you had the bundle, you'll be able to access it through Disney Plus. Maybe that's just the beginning to test it out. Which further pushes your point, right, of, okay, so I'm accessing the content through the same portal anyway. Why is this separate? Is the content on one... I, I can understand the value of Disney Plus appealing to a different set of people than the value of Hulu. So maybe it is okay that they're separate. But yeah, I think there are so many people that are just going to get both. Or neither. Personally, I still like that they're separate because this is something that I realized like a year ago that I used to have, you, you did it as well, I think, Spotify student, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which not only was it, it was five ninety nine instead of nine ninety nine, but it came with Hulu. Right. After I stopped being a student, because they just do it automatically in based on number of years, they moved me to Spotify Premium, which is nine ninety nine. But they grandfather you getting Hulu. So I still have Hulu through my Spotify membership. So I hope they don't put them together because I might lose that for free. Yeah, that's great. We have Netflix for free yeah. through T Mobile. Like I I get it. And in which case, if that got removed, we just simply would not be subscribing to Netflix. 
Yeah. <sighs> you mentioned something about uh, other Disney licensing, or not Disney licensing Box per Office? se, just but just Disney, which is Ooh. there's this article that came out in I want to say Variety. Yes, Variety. This yes. week it was the the cover story of their issue uh, about Marvel being in trouble. And did you have a chance to read through this? I did, with the very creative name of, is Marvel in trouble? It could have been a little bit more creative. I did like the cover, which was all the heroes being in a circle, about to pose, and everyone just walking away from them. Um, It's not stuff we've talked about on here. Jonathan Majors throws a huge wrinkle into everything because he is about to be on trial for domestic violence. He's claiming innocence, but he's mm-hmm. still on trial, and there is evidence to the contrary. He said so they, in this, in the classic Marvel fashion, they have built the next few years upon him being the big bad. Uh, the next two Avengers movies actually will center around him as the villain. But this time, it's uniquely even worse because... He's also the big bad of Loki. He is integrated within the MCU shows. And they have mm-hmm. hundreds of hours of television that are all tying together as well. And that's something that also comes up with the Marvels, which is tracking to a lackluster debut and apparently had mediocre test screenings in Texas a few months ago. Um, just seems, seems like Marvel is... Their grow, grow, grow mentality, just like Disney's grow, grow, grow streaming mentality, seems to have dovetailed into just a lot of problems for them that are all coming up at once. Yeah. No such thing as too big to fail. Or yeah, they had a balance. Like there was a size that added a lot of value and made it very both exciting for customers, but that also actually benefited from like economies of scale of like, you know, you have a certain team that can manage multiple projects at the same time. But now, like you mentioned over the past couple of years with with the size of the content with TV and movies and number of characters, it just got unwieldy and it started to break at the seams and now it's just ripped apart. It's, there's, and there's lots of stuff in the story where it's like, nobody could have seen this happening, what? One thing being, they talk quite a bit about the VFX artists who voted to unionize, but the VFX I mean, artists at Marvel have been severely mistreated with 14-hour days and crunch time. I found out from this article that apparently She-Hulk had effects inserted after the streaming premiere of the show. I saw that. It's crazy. Whoa. So just, they voted to unionize because it was a bad culture and they weren't getting no direction and they're getting blamed for looking bad, but I mean, which on one hand, the effects are a lot of what looks bad about the Marvel movies, but that's a culture of chaos at the top. I think we've talked on here about WandaVision mm-hmm. trying to premiere, was originally going to premiere later in the streaming run of the Disney shows, but actually got moved up and they had to rejigger all the movies around that. Same thing apparently happened with the Marvels where they had to do reshoots. Uh, the director actually stepped away and is during post production and is working on other another film right now. Which, on one hand, good for her. 
also is pretty on rails. She probably doesn't manage a lot of the post prod, but at the same time, that's kind of a weird signal. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, the VFX part specifically, it's just one of those things that it's, people see it as a root cause, but in reality, it's a symptom, right? I think in the article, they talk about this example of, oh, the writing just was just crazy and they ended up doing things last minute and that added a lot of pressure to to the VFX. But I think it all goes down to like, it feels seems like this ability that they had from a core group of people to be able to maintain almost like a mix of quality control and operations running smoothly got out of control. So now it's the writing, it's a little bit sloppier, which then also leads to some of the uh, BFX being more difficult to do. The stories don't make as much sense. Um, and it's interesting also, right, that he talks in the article of how so much of these might have come from the... Um, the push from Disney Plus, which is now we need to have TV and we need to have these things where I never know if we did the math right, but like how many hours of movies existed before like Avengers Endgame? And let's say they were like, I'm going to make it up 30 hours of movies, 35, like 17 movies. That's probably just WandaVision and Loki. Yeah. Or like what some something else was already so in that amount, but yeah. This just feels like the like a sadder version of the Eisner era all over again, where Eisner, I mean, I actually was speaking with a friend of the show, Nick Sparks, on the side about this with Netflix had their announced that they're going to open Netflix stores. Did you see this news item? Mm-hmm. And it's like, what did they possibly have to sell? And my, my joke was, well, they figured out that people want a communal place to experience content together. But in reality, it reminds me of Disney Regional Entertainment, where Eisner decided that every every medium-sized city in America needed to have a Disney experience of some kind. And here, Disney's content strategy has started to feel like the direct-to-VHS era of, let's make a sequel or two to every single major Disney animated film ever even releasing some of them in theaters. I think that's where this feels. It's just, we need to push out content because the more content we make, obviously we're going to have a linear or exponentially positive effect on our cash flow if we do that. But yeah, Hollywood has proven that the MCU was a fluke, a fluke of timing, a fluke of Robert Downey Jr. and some brilliant producers. I don't want to smirch anything they did with the MCU because it was an incredible achievement. It, yeah. it was. Yeah. You and I are both yeah. kind of mixed on the pre-Avengers Endgame films, but they did it. It was impressive. Nobody's done it before, and nobody's been able to re- replicate it. And I think now just they tried to quadruple it, and it's just not buying off because it can't be done again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, curious to see where they go. I'm I've actually, so I listen to a lot of film podcasts, obviously, and um, directors, including Nia DaCosta, the director of the Marvels, appear on some of them. And the the way in which they talk about Disney has been a little less guarded lately, mm-hmm. meaning they'll be a little casually critical of it, or they'll make like a, a snide comment about, you know, like Lord Miller getting fired from Star Wars or whatnot. So I think the 
dictatorial culture of Disney from the content side is starting to grate on filmmakers in a way where I don't necessarily think that a Marvel movie is a guarantee for you to be able to make something of your own in the future. It never really panned out that way. So I think people are choosing to take their talents elsewhere and have other opportunities now. So maybe this would have made more sense to talk about the things that I got wrong, but uh, something that maybe wasn't that wrong. um, Box office. uh, I predicted at the beginning of the year that 2023 was not only going to get back to like pre-pandemic levels, but that it was going to be the highest box office gross ever. Of course, between things like the strike and, you know, doing two moving and so many things being pushed months and like that's not going to happen. But we did see uh, last week, 2023 officially passed 2022 with more than two months to go. You know, there's still the Marvels coming. There's still Aquaman 2, which the trailer looks... uh, so much happening. Talk about a movie that's uh, been mired by reshoots and rewrites and is now maybe orphaned in its franchise. We have no idea how the the gun cinematic universe is going to work. Another failure of Marvel yeah. to retain James Gunn, yeah. the one consistent yeah. moneymaker they have, but that's beside the point. Yeah. Yeah. There is a real chance that for the rest of the year, the biggest movie still to come out is Beyonce's Renaissance Tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, which no, I mean that looks great. No, no, I have zero problem with that. Just that um, that didn't do as good. But something that um, was kind of a kind of a breath of fresh air to the box office was Five Nights at Freddy's. Did you ever play the game? I never played the game. I went deep on the lore the other night and looking at the games. I didn't realize that every game was a different mechanic, which is kind of cool. But in in my high, in my mind, it was like this is like Roblox or Minecraft, where I'm aware of it. I've played Minecraft, but I this is for Zoomers and not for me, and that's fine. <laughs> I of course didn't play it because, as you know, I don't like horror or terror or getting scared. But it was some, I remember when the game came out, how big it was, and when they announced the movie, how big it was gonna be. I was, I think people were surprised of how well it did. I think it was 70, was it 78 million? Or am I confusing them with uh, the second weekend of Taylor Swift? Well, while you help me look for exactly their number, the thing that was even more surprising is not only how well it did, but that it was released at the same time in Peacock. That surprises me. Wow, I didn't even know that. Uh, Yeah, it made... It's gross so far as 80 million. And I think that might just be domestic. Okay. I don't think it's released internationally. Let's see. Look. In two weekends? Or is it just one week? One weekend this past weekend? Um, it, it might be just one. It's just right? one weekend. Yeah. Okay. So incredible stuff. Yeah. And it was it was day and date on Peacock. Wow. So Which... Encanto Paradox 101. Why on earth wouldn't you put this out there? I think especially for these types of movies of like horror and wanting to have a communal experience makes so much sense. It's PG-13, uh, which is... Yeah, not R. Which I think helped a lot because teenagers... Uh, I thought we discovered in the 90s that teenagers make a lot of money for studios and for merch and whatnot. 
And everything became very dumbed down PG-13 in the 90s and still kind of is. Marvel is the, I think, peak of that. But ultimately, mm-hmm. a lot of horror has been relegated to rated R, kind of smaller budgets. Indie filmmakers get to take off there and do what they want. It's rare to see a big PG-13 horror release. And I think that shows that teenagers who... Teenagers don't have that much ability to do what they want, right? They're they're not fully out of the house. They want to go do something with their friends where their parents aren't there. And going seeing a dumb movie based on games that they like is a perfect way of courting them. And I think that this shows that Five Nights at Freddy's is such a generational phenomenon in terms of I think it does skew yeah. so young that there is an audience there that has been neglected, just like the children and family audience has been neglected. Everyone's been trying to make just mediocre PG-13 action movies, and I think people are wanting a change. So it's mm-hmm. exciting to see. And Yeah, I wish it was something I could be excited to watch. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> because it, but Yeah, it feels, I mean, it doesn't feel like Barbenheimer at all, right? But it does feel like one of these, like, oh, it captured the imagination of people. It drove people to the movies. And it drove people to the movies when it was available online. It has a D-Cinema score, so... Probably not for us since we're not fans, but good for Universal. They're having a good year. Oppenheimer did surprisingly well. This did surprisingly well. Even Killer of the Flower Moon doing pretty well for a $200 million, three and a half hour movie that's a huge bummer that half of America is going to either not see or be mad about because it's about real things that happen in American history. But it made $43 million so far. When it, for Paramount on Apple, it was designed yeah. to be an Apple TV Plus original. Yeah, Napoleon's going to come out too and probably make some money. So that's forty-three million dollars, twenty of which Apple will take, and that's twenty million dollars that Apple doesn't really need, but they weren't going to get off of Apple TV Plus even if they raise their subscription prices, which they are. So <laughs> it just proves. I I really think that when we look back at this podcast whatever we eventually end it hopefully not soon never never we're gonna be doing this in our 80s but that is the one yeah. novel concept that you have named that i think is really important and has a, has staying power where the Kanto paradox proves your point where if these theater films are in theaters people will see them and it will make money even if streaming is available because somebody wants to go to a movie theater to make my point, like, I don't know when they'll realize this, but why on earth is Netflix not doing the Killer and Maestro wide release? They're not going to lose a single subscriber. The Killer by doing that. would do great. They're probably going to grow subscribers because people that are not subscribers are going to realize that this is the type of movie that they have. And they're going to make, I mean, if they make, let's say one of these movies makes $200 million total and they make $100 million out of that because of distribution. How many months of subscription is that? Is that 10 million subscription months if we just assume $10? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like the killer is the perfect... Like Panic Room, I think, is probably the closest Fincher film to it in terms of it's a adult thriller. It's not trying to be anything really more than that. It seems to have the energy of Soderbergh just tossing one off, which... Again, like I'm disappointed that Warner has not been releasing most Soderbergh movies in the theater for the same exact reason. But adults who have a free Friday night that 
don't want to go see Killers of the Flower Moon or one of the horror movies that's out right now, they're going to go see something like The Killer. But in most cities in America, if you don't live in Austin or Boston or 20 metros, you're not going to be able to go see it in a theater. Yep. And I don't think the (sighs) classic hype train of... I, I don't get... I wish Netflix would just do day and date. Like their whole, we're gonna, it's only gonna be in theaters for a month thing, doesn't make sense when it's not a wide release to begin with. Because the people in those cities that are gonna go out of their way to go see the killer in a theater, like I am, are gonna go out of their way to see the killer in a theater anyway. It's it's so silly. Yeah. I thought it was a market, Carl. I thought people wanted to maximize profit for their shareholders. Apparently. Well, they, they want to win streaming, which seems to be an unwinnable game. Um, I think this is a great pivot point, speaking of Apple, to yeah, end on Apple. Yeah, you mentioned Apple. Which, yeah. this is something, uh, we have a group text with the two of us and Nick and Shelby, which just lights up every time there's an Apple event, because it's a... It, <laughs> which now is like once a month. Like I know. Like, like Disney culture, it is something where when you're a nerd about it, you're like go deep on it and you're following everything and you're tracking everything. And I just, I've been wrestling with this thing. Nick had some good theories, but Apple had an event this past week, which they often have a October event where they just toss off. Excuse me. They often have an October event where they just toss off some Mac announcements or iPad announcements. They didn't want to put in the iPhone event and uh, just trying to get things out before the holiday season. This one was especially niche in that it was updating the iMac and the MacBook Pro to M3 mm-hmm. processors, which, cool. Like, that that's pros care about that, but most people are probably not waiting to upgrade their laptops, especially since the MacBook Pro just got updated to M2s at the beginning of the year. But the thing that really struck me was that they were advertising this as their first primetime keynote. They were really pushing this whole narrative of it. it's a primetime keynote. And I am fascinated by that. Who watches Apple keynotes? And who is watching them in primetime? And what does it mean that they wanted to test broadcasting something at primetime? Yeah, I was as, as, as I couldn't answer to some of the first emails, uh, messages, sorry, that came out on that uh, thread. My first reaction was also like, why not? Totally. Like, I'm a person that follows Apple relatively closely. I'm not at your level or some of the Apple fans that... But, you know, if they're announcing something, I'll probably open the e-engadget blog, you know, as they announce. Or I'll go read The Verge's, you know, summary totally. the same day. This doesn't change anything. This probably increases the likelihood that I will be able to watch it because I'm not working. But at the same time, I don't think it increased the reach that much. Yeah. So even I, even I watch WWDC, yeah. and that's about it. Mm-hmm. But just because that's kind of every product line they're launching iOS things. Yeah. It's software features I care about as opposed to hardware. Yeah. Um, this one was exciting with the Vision Pro, but this is an event where I'm not even a gonna watch anything i might watch the behind the scenes feature that they released of it being shot on an iphone which nick's theory is that because this is such an insular event that's really catering towards a pro audience that 
function of it being shot on an iPhone and the fact that they were boasting that are really pushing the fact that they you can use it in a live or pseudo live production flow. That's yep. cool. And that's interesting. And yeah. that is squarely in the sights of the certain sort of person that would actually care about this announcement. Yeah, it was more a marketing event for iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, because also with the iMacs, as a proud owner of an M2 uh, MacBook Air 15-inch, that it's the, how do they call it? Space black? Well, yours is space gray. Now they have a space black laptop that's blacker. Mine is black. Mine is not space gray. Mine is black. Maybe maybe they do have a space black, black MacBook Air, but they did not have a space black MacBook Pro before. I'm going to lower my thing so that you can see. I don't know if you can that, see. It's, it's black, that, black. That is black, black, yes. Yeah. Not midnight, it's black. So... I was like, yeah, of course they were going to announce this. Their other computer, the one that sells more. Well, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if the MacBook Air sells more. I shouldn't say it, that, it does. It's their, by all... They usually just find it. It is absolutely their, their single best-selling machine and has been. I just found it to be, I'm so happy. Speaking of Apple, I've had this for a, a month and a half now. It's amazing. The 15-inch. It's super thin. Yeah. It's The screen is so cool. It's light. It's not that much lighter than the MacBook Pro 14. But I love it. I, it's so great. I have a 16. It, it holds. When I go to a coffee shop, it's big enough. Yeah, how is your back? I, I have a 16-inch work <laughs> um, laptop. I used to have that. Which I really like it. It's the M, It's the M1, so it's the, the chunky boy. But just it feels like a. it's like the best laptop I've ever had, hands down. I just couldn't carry it around. Anytime I had to go on a yeah. flight, I was like, this is going to be awful. It's so heavy. It is heavy, but it's a well-designed machine for professional users, and I like it quite a bit. Uh, I think, to get nerdy for a second, the one thing that I am confused about from this announcement, outside of the it's weird that they did it at a primetime thing, is that it is they announced the M3 processors when the Vision Pro is their new flagship computing device, and it runs on an M2. Maybe that will change, but I highly doubt that they're going to be able to change the change any of that. Maybe it just points to the fact that the first-gen Vision Pro is really not for anybody except for developers trying to figure out the Vision Pro. Yeah, exactly. Um, cool. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, AUA, quickly, because I don't think we talked about this on in the podcast. Uh, anatomy of a fall. Yes. What did you think? I I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. It's in my top 10 for the year, certainly. It's well-made, an adult thriller, really cool, good courtroom movie. I was disappointed that the trailer was so... The trailer was evocative of, speaking of David Fincher, I have a huge soft spot for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think it's a wonderful adaptation of that book. And it's a true adaptation in that they change a lot of the, the book to make it suitable and for the screen and cinematic. But I love Fincher's use of multimedia and it kind of perfects what he did with Social Network where watching Daniel Craig use the computer is fascinating and really well done. And the, the trailer for Anatomy of the Fall made it seem very investigative in that way as opposed to kind of a more rote courtroom drama. So I was kind of disappointed mm -hmm. that it isn't that innovative or 
flashy. I just, I like kind of hyper cinema like that. Like give me an Oliver Stone or um, Adam McKay film any day where I'm just being bombarded with information. But I think this was a, not that, but it does bombard you with information emotionally. And I think it's so cool mm-hmm. that the emotional centering of how you feel about these characters really makes you care about what's happening and the outcome of the trial, even if it's not maybe the just outcome. Yeah. And I think it's a cool how exactly what you said, of like how they are able to balance that emotionality because there is, I mean, I guess, spoilers, Anatomy of a Fall, 30 seconds, skip forward. At the end of the movie, you don't know what actually happened. So you're able to build some of these things through how each of the... At the end, kind you kind of get the story from the three characters. You don't really ever get it from the husband, but you kind of see where he was coming from, yeah. what she was dealing with, and what the son was going through. Mm-hmm. And it's never perfectly clear. Not because it's a... It's not a mystery, right? Where you're like, oh, this is like the Batman where it's a puzzle that you put together, but you're just hearing their stories and empathizing with the three of them. And it's kind of up to you to see if you believe the son, if you believe the mother, if something happened with... Yeah, anyway, I really enjoyed it. Uh, to go back to Fincher yet again, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about The Killer tomorrow. You're obsessed. And my check's covering Fincher, and he is the first filmmaker I fell in love with. Like, I really adore the run from Zodiac to Gone Girl. I think that's the best like five picture run of almost any filmmaker. But Zodiac is very similar and that Zodiac it's not a spoiler for Zodiac. They never figured out who the Zodiac killer was. Spoiler for history. Exactly. Yeah. But it's a three hour movie where you're really invested in the people investigating the Zodiac killer. And you get yeah. you can tease out all these theories and tease out all this information and you have most of the information available to you that you need to have a gist of what the case was about. And that is satisfying in of, of itself, just like Anatomy of a Fall. And I think that's a, a great achievement. Yeah, I agree. Uh, still look for The Taste of Things. I will. Because I think I liked it more. Very different movie. Very I'm assuming movie. that AFS will get it via the Austin Film Society Theater. They get a lot of the foreign indies that Alamo isn't necessarily dedicating time to. Oh, yeah. But... Yeah, and just to say it for people uh, who haven't heard about uh, The Taste of Things, is actually France's entry to the Oscars, even though Anatomy of a Fall won uh, Cannes. The the president of the Boston Independent Film Festival, when he was opening, he's like, yeah, for so for those of you who saw Anatomy of a Fall... You're probably going to realize that maybe the reason why they did this is because this is a very French movie in French in France. While Anatomy of a Fall is a movie about a German lady that only speaks English. <laughs> so there might have been something there about uh, when they ended up choosing it. But I, the taste of things. Very mellow, very sweet. I very I love watching Julia Pinoche do anything. So would excited to see that when I can. So my AUA for you, back to the Marvel story, the one thing we didn't touch on is a news item that is bewildering but not surprising and really I think speaks to the, well, we got to go back to the well. Something's got to work. we got to fix Marvel somehow. So the news item that was buried in the story is that Marvel's apparently considering just bringing back the core Avengers team from the 
mm, first two Avengers films, which is tricky because of contracts and character deaths and pretty much every one of those characters except for Bruce Banner has a pretty complete arc. I guess mm -hmm. Thor's arc is not quite complete, give or take Love and Thunder. But how does that land on you? Like, what is that something they should do, first of all? And what does that mean if they do that? What does that signal? Yeah. My hunch, which is what I, I think they should do, is that they shouldn't do this. I think it would be a desperate move that yeah. just delays inevitable. Yeah. Like, they need to figure how to make this organic. And they should put themselves in the shoes of, like, just assume, you, like you said, right? For any reason, you're not getting these people back. Assume they're very expensive. Assume they say no. Assume they're busy. Whatever. And just... Figure out how you're moving forward. Because as they have to be thinking, Disney right now, the the like the whirlwind that they're in, that they're going deeper and deeper, it makes it very easy to try to make very short-term decisions. And this is exactly what they can't afford. The best franchises that are able to sustain themselves long-term which I would call out Bond and Batman as probably the, the two best versions of this are ones where they are reactive and innovative in that mm -hmm. they're reacting to the previous incarnation, whether that's, okay, Joel Schumacher, we went in all, all in on the toys and the neon and let's retool it and make it serious. Or I guess it's similar with, from Rosnan to Craig of let's take this seriously and reboot it. But I think you have to figure out where the market is moving. I think both Batman Begins and Casino Royale were contemporaries. And I think part of a movement to make things grimmer and darker and more adult and serious. But I think that recognized that people wanted to engage with these things a little bit more seriously. And I'm not saying that we need to have a Zack Snyder's Avengers, but what I'm saying is... You're not? Recognize, okay, the Marvel movies are... Iron Man is almost 20 years old at this point. That is an entire generation. And what one generation likes is not what another generation likes. And as people age and change, they're not going to be drawn to the same exact thing. So continuing to double down on what worked in terms of Marvel feels very similar. Like a Marvel movie today still feels like vestiges of Joss Whedon's Avengers. Like that was the template mm -hmm. that set all of this up through today. And I think you have to eventually call it quits, blow it up and innovate a little bit. And sure, maybe I guess you could do that with the core Avengers group and just kind of reset it and do a different multiverse or whatever. Cool. But I think that it signals their lack of creativity in thinking of a future that doesn't involve that cast. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is exactly what they need to do, right? If they want yeah. to figure out this scale, you have to move beyond them. I mean, my my this is not an original pitch. I've heard this pitch lots of places. But I think the acquisition of Fox brings in mutants. It brings in the Fantastic Four. It brings in 
the oldest characters in culture, mass popular culture of the Marvel canon. Those were popular mm-hmm. and developed far before the MCU. But it also offers a chance to kind of reboot that and work from scratch and recreate an MCU based maybe closer to the comics or with some of the darker themes that those franchises are able to plumb. And maybe you just say, cool, MCU 2.0, we start in the 60s, it's the Fantastic Four, it's the mutants, and let's build a world from there. Something like that. Like, hard reset, maybe it ties back to the MCU, maybe it doesn't, but I think you have to do something that drastically different and not cast Hugh Jackman as, as Wolverine again, not keep going back to the same things over and over again and hoping they'll work because they just won't. It never does. It's never happened. Yeah. Yeah. I am excited for Deadpool 3, though. With Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. But I was going to say it's also the closest to something like a Guardians of the Galaxy in terms of style and tone. Um, I mean, also, just who amongst us is not just fully in on Hugh Jackman and whatever he decides to do at this point? And you could have made the same argument about Logan. Like, really? We're going to make a a dark, gritty adaptation of a different storyline with the same guy? Old Wolverine, yeah. It's doable, but it's unusual. Cool. So, wow, we actually... I was worried this was going to be an hour and a half episode that I was going to have to edit. With every topic, (laughs) we were able to get through a lot. It helps that... I think we, I can't tell if we've gotten better at segueing or just everything in our world just kind of all comes back to the same stuff over and over and over again. But I'm proud of how much we were able to cover here. Yeah, yeah. This was great. This was exciting. Uh, great to catch up, Carl. Always. And everyone will hopefully talk to you next week. Yeah, no promises, but that's the goal. Bye.